The two men waited patiently near the Omkareshwar temple in Pune. It was early in the morning, at about 7.20 a.m. They were surrounded by devotees, morning walkers and the general hustle-bustle of a busy morning. The temple stood at one end of the Maharshi Vittal Ramji Shinde Bridge. They were on a bike which they parked near the temple and proceeded to walk towards the opposite end of the bridge. They had found what they were looking for. An old man in his late 60s, balding, genial looking, wearing a kurta pajama on his way back from his morning walk. They approached closer to him. One of them pulled out a gun and fired three shots at the man at point-blank range. The old man was once hit in the chest, once in the neck and a third time in the head. He fell crumbled into a heap in a pool of his own blood on the bridge. The men then ran away towards the temple, got on their bike and sped away. The police were called by some passers-by and they checked the personal effects on the now-deceased body to look for any identification. Narendra Achyut Dhabolkar had just been assassinated at 7.20 a.m. on 20th August 2013. The scene shifts to Kolhapur in Maharashtra. An elderly woman in her 70s is cleaning the front gates of her house in Ideal Colony at Kolhapur. The time is about 8 a.m., she notices two men sitting on a bike in front of the house. They're chatting among themselves and she doesn't think too much of it. Later, she and her husband go for their usual morning walk. As they're coming back to their house after their walk, the husband is approached by the two men. They ask in Marathi, More kutte rehtat? Where does More live? The husband says he doesn't know anyone named More and the men laugh. The elderly woman notes how it's not a natural laugh. I mean, there is something maniacal about it. The next few moments are a blur. They take out their gun. They fire four rounds. Two bullets hit the man, one in the nape of his neck and one in the chest. One bullet hits the woman in the head. Their family members rush them to the hospital. The woman regains consciousness and she would live to tell the tale. The husband would wake up the next day And for just a moment, it feels like the worst is over. But the relief is premature. Because his condition deteriorates rapidly. There is a swelling in his lungs and he is airlifted to the Breach Candy Hospital in Mumbai. But he breathes his last the very same day. Comrade Govind Pansare died on 20th February 2015, four days after him and his wife Uma were shot on 16th February 2015. The scene now shifts to a humble house in Dharwad, Karnataka. It's about 8.40 in the morning. A woman hears knocking on the door and opens it to find three men outside asking for her husband, a professor. We are students, they tell her, and she invites them in. She walks into the kitchen to make coffee for them. Everything seems normal. But then, all of a sudden, she hears the blood-curdling sounds of a gun being fired. She rushes to see that her husband collapsed on the ground, bleeding profusely. Bullets have hit his chest and his neck. He had been shot at point-blank range, once in his chest and once in the forehead. M.M. Kalburgi, one of Karnataka's most 
prolific Kannada scholars had just been assassinated in his own home at 8.40 in the morning on 30th August 2015, merely months after the tragic murder of Govind Pansare. Kavita was in her car, driving back from her scheduled badminton session in the evening. All of a sudden, she got a call from her mother. It was troubling news. Her sister Gauri had collapsed. A million possibilities ran through Kavita's mind. She could have had a stroke or a heart attack. Was it a blood pressure problem? She reversed her car and started driving towards her sister's home. And as she did so, her phone would not stop ringing. The barrage of calls and messages was relentless. She answered one call and the journalist on the other end alarmed her completely when they mentioned a shooting. Kavita tried to reason with herself, you know, maybe they missed. It could not be fatal. Who would shoot her sister? But then, as she turned the corner towards her sister's home, Kavita knew that the worst had happened. Gauri Lankesh had been assassinated at about 8pm, right as she was entering her home in Bangalore by a man on a bike. He had fired three shots, her heart and lung were damaged and she had died on the spot. Welcome to another thrilling episode. This is Sneha from Hyderabad and I'm joined by Aditi as usual. We've been off air for the past two weeks, but we did manage to host our very first live show on Zoom. Yay! <laughs> I think I owe an apology Ooh. to everyone who attended the first show on Saturday. No, seriously, because my internet was completely out of whack. I mean, I took all possible precautions that day, but, you know, it was just a bad day. And I really, really appreciate the patience of the people who stuck by us throughout and were kind enough to keep telling us yeah. that, oh, you know, these things happen and don't worry. I mean, honestly, we have some of the nicest and sweetest listeners. The Sunday show went much better. Yeah, that's true. And But Aditi and I couldn't stop smiling after the Sunday show. We never ever expected more than 7-8 people <laughs> at this thing. But we ultimately ended up with 70. Yeah, and it was so nice to put faces to, you know, your Insta and Twitter handles. Because, I mean, we do interact with a lot of you in our DMs. So it was great to finally see your gorgeous faces and actually, you know, talk to you during the Q&A session. It was really yeah. good. Absolutely. I mean, we'll be doing more of these in the future. So make sure you're following us on Twitter or Insta so you don't miss out on any of them. And we hope to see many more of you in the future shows. Yeah. And another important update is that we managed to interview an actual real-life true crime author, Anirvan mm -hmm. Bhattacharya, who is releasing the second edition of his book, The Deadly Dozen. Anirban is one of the most down-to-earth and witty people we have ever met. He's also a good writer. So please, you know, just uh, listen to that. It's, uh, it's on our YouTube page. And uh, yeah, to check out for yourself. Yeah, if you're interested in the nitty-gritties of the true crime writing world, what goes into research, etc., please check out the interview. It was especially helpful for Aditi and I. And I'm sure a lot yeah. of you will appreciate it as well. The video is on our YouTube channel, which we link down in our show notes. Please check it out 
as well and while you're there do us a solid and subscribe okay please we're just new to all these things <laughs> excuse all the video quality and everything but mm. anyway so aditi should we begin the show what are we talking about today okay so today uh, will be a discussion on two things first we'll talk about the spate of assassinations in maharashtra and karnataka of progressive and rational activists and then we will discuss the sketchy and lesser known right wing organization that may have been responsible for it and much much worse this is a much much requested episode for us yeah for sure and uh, we've also given a lot of thought to how we should approach this you know we've kept tabs on the investigation hoping to see something concrete happen because you know so far no trials have started in either of these cases so eventually we just gave up and we decided to cover whatever the investigation has revealed so far and then uh, there was a question of whether we should discuss the assassinations individually or together when i started writing this episode i mean it was only supposed to be based on gauri lankesh but i mean i researched more and then i realized that the four assassinations are definitely connected i mean i think everyone knew that the four assassinations are connected mm. but uh, while researching you really get to see exactly how you know the specifics of it so i thought it would be better to cover them together and with that i also decided to cover the very obscure but highly insidious organization that the police suspect was behind all these assassinations so with that let's start with the very first assassination that of narendra dhabolkar so at the beginning of the episode in our cold open we described how he was shot near the temple in pune during his morning walk so at the time of his assassination narendra dhabolkar was best known as a rationalist he was the head of the maharashtra andhshraddha nirmulan samiti which was an organization founded in the 80s and it focused on rooting out superstition among people but in his lifetime dhabolkar donned many other hats he had been a kabaddi player in his college days he had been a doctor for 12 years and he had been the editor of sadhana a marathi publication championing the liberal thought he was born into a liberal socialist family from satara his father was a lawyer and his mother was a rationalist when narendra married and had his own family they adopted and supported his rationalist activism he chose to call his son hamid after hamid dalwai okay i don't know how many non marathis know about hamid dalwai but he was a social reformer dedicated to feminism secularism and progress narendra wanted to name his son after the man who inspired him dabolkar's life was dedicated to service of humanity and we know that sounds like a generic cliche people say about public personalities but this was actually true for dhabolkar he had two main causes the first was eradicating casteism he was active in agitations demanding rights for dalits in maharashtra we like to think that the problems such as caste based discrimination or untouchability are antiquated practices that don't exist today and by we i mean us i mean sarvan hindu specifically dalits know that this is a far cry from the truth even today dalits live segregated lives i mean they're forced to live segregated lives sarvan dominated communities prevent dalits from using communal water sources like wells or ponds among other things i mean this is true even today and it was true almost 3 decades ago when dhabolkar started his activism under the tutelage of baba adhav another social reformer from maharashtra 
and their flagship campaign was one village one well and the goal was to make sure that public water bodies like wells are accessible to everyone including dalits who had been forbidden by savarnas from using them the other thing he ca- deeply cared about was superstition in his book the care of reason understanding the anti superstition movement dhabolkar has this to say about superstitions superstition is really black marketing in the business of faith what religion these black marketers superstition mongers follow should be nobody's concern least of all that of anis anis has always opposed exploitative buwa baji practice of having a religious teacher and consecrating one's life to him and religious rituals that boast superstition wherever and whenever they occur here anis refers to his organization andhshraddha nirmulan samiti his campaign was against exploitative practices like black magic he opposed bhakti of assorted babas and godmen He observes in his book that Hindu fundamentalists had accused him of being anti-Hindu and he reasoned that it was true most of the superstitions he fought were related to Hinduism he attributes that to the fact of that you know 80% population in India is considered Hindu he notes how his organization has opposed superstitious practices among muslims christians jains and buddhists as well See he has an interesting analogy for this he likens india to a 10 room house with all the religions as different family members he says hindus with a population of 80% occupy eight rooms muslims get one room and everyone else gets the last 10th room he says that even if all the rooms are equally filthy only cleaning the 9th and the 10th room will not ensure overall cleanliness but if the eight rooms signifying the large body of hindu faith is cleaned the whole house will be cleaner significantly filth of course here refers to superstition so he is basically saying reform hinduism first no he is saying that the attitude of the hindu orthodoxy where they keep indulging in whataboutery is wrong and dangerous you know like how you point out a problem among hindus and their mm. immediate reaction is oh but muslims have xyz problems why don't you criticize that yeah 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 so he is basically saying that deflection is counterproductive right he admits that almost all religions have superstitions but hinduism with its caste structure and pervasive misogyny perpetuates superstitions which are designed to oppress and marginalize certain sections of the faith and i think that is 100% true i mean we don't have the luxury of saying that we won't reform until every other religion in india has reformed i mean we are the dominant group our reform should be our priority especially because it affects others yeah like how caste often gets exported into other religions even egalitarian ones like sikhism and islam Yeah exactly and Dabolkar also opposes this entitlement of certain organizations and leaders when it comes to framing rules for what ideal hinduism is i mean he questions the right of those people to dictate how a hindu should conduct himself yeah i mean i can see why rss will be angered by it <laughs> i know right yeah. i mean what right does rss or vhp have 
to tell me how I should conduct myself as a Hindu woman. I mean, what right do they have to impose on me their understanding of this religion or the right to tell me that I should hate certain people or I should not eat certain food or I should or what medicines I should take. I mean, it's insane. Or who we can marry. Also, yeah. it takes a special type of entitlement to not just tell your own community what the rules are, but also other communities. Like what mm. right does a Sangh Parivar have to tell anyone not to eat beef? I want to eat yeah, beef. Exactly. I can afford <laughs> to eat beef. I'll make sure it's cleaned. What is your problem? <laughs> I know. And I think Adi and I take issue with one thing. This guy praises Savarkar. He talks about Savarkar's rigorous examination of religious books, but glosses over his role in promoting Islamophobia and communal hatred, or even his role in Gandhi's assassination. Yeah, that was definitely a problematic idea in Thapulkar's book. I mean, I don't know if he changed his mind about Savarkar later or... I mean, if any of our audience members are more familiar with Thapulkar's work and ideology, please let us know. We'll issue a correction in the next. But he definitely mm, praises yeah. Savarkar in his book. So, however, the main point is that his unrelenting opposition to superstition earned him many enemies, particularly among Hindu hardliners. He criticized the fact that women were not allowed in certain temples like Shani Shignapur and Shabri Mala. And he was against the immersion of Ganesh idols in water bodies after Ganesh Chaturthi because, you know, it causes water pollution. You look at the situation now, though, people are actually conscious about these things now. It's a trendy thing to get a clay Ganesha and immerse it in your own backyard in a small pool or, you know, plant a Ganesha or those kind of things. It's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, people are making chocolate <laughs> Ganesha idols and immersing them in milk. Yeah, it's bizarre to me now that someone would be threatened for suggesting something like that. Actually, it's mm. not, but... I mean, I'm not surprised. The idea of Hindu victimhood is so deeply ingrained in us. I mean, there's a real conversation to be had about the impact of fireworks during Diwali or sexual harassment around Holi. But we can't even do that without getting completely derailed with allegations of Hindu phobia. Why is it Hindu phobic to discuss genuinely problematic aspects of Hindu culture? Yeah, well, but isn't this something every reformer had to face? Like the Hindu orthodoxy has always alleged that Hindu phobia, you know, alleged Hindu phobia every time anyone has suggested even the smallest of changes. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. So this is a question that Dhabolkar asked time and again from his own detractors. In the years before his death, his goal and that of his organization was to ensure that a legislation banning black magic uh, in Maharashtra would be passed. Dabolkar drafted the bill and was criticized for being anti-Hindu. Dabolkar had always been threatened by fundamentalists. And I think this is only because his efforts threatened to close down their little shops, you know, because we've covered two godmen on this podcast. We have pointed out how these men have been ultra-exploitative towards their followers and how they weaponized faith to prey on the marginalized and how they leveraged their clout to influence politicians and bureaucrats. These types of so-called godmen, women with their deep nexus with right-wing organizations posed a massive threat 
to Dhabolkar to give you a sense of how much Dhabolkar managed to rattle these people both Shiv Sena and BJP MLAs demanded in Maharashtra assembly that Anshraddha Nirmulan Samiti should be banned claiming that they are eroding the faith of the people and they are deviating them from the path of spiritualism and this bill that they were talking about contains if if this bill is passed no hindu would be able to perform puja in their own house it's not like these people were really concerned about the hindu culture politicians benefit from their connections with religious leaders people like asaram gurmeet ram rahim sadguru you know and all other assorted gurus provide a ready vote bank for these netas and it's thus common for the politicians to patronize them so when dhabolkar came for their bread and butter the politicians were obviously angered yeah and the bill did become a huge bone of contention it languished in maharashtra assembly for many years meanwhile hindu fundamentalists kept threatening and attacking dhabolkar for every chance they got people advised him to keep a gun for his protection and seek police protection th- from the state government but to dhabolkar this would have meant giving in to the destructive forces and he didn't want to do that so even though he had spent a lifetime fending attacks and threats from such people the last threat that he would ever receive would be the most telling dhabolkar was literally told remember what we did to gandhi it is debatable whether dhabolkar was comparable to gandhi in life but in death he definitely was as some of you may remember gandhi too refused police protection in his final days dhabolkar died as he lived a rationalist to the core he was cremated by his daughter mukta defying the regressive hindu custom of forbidding women from lighting funeral pyres he had donated his body to science during his lifetime this wish couldn't be fulfilled because of the autopsy that had to be performed on him sidebar i think it's time to get a little personal here i performed the last rite when my dad passed away and it was quite the task to get permission to do it okay our family priest didn't have an issue but the people at the crematorium kept saying how it's bad luck and it's not a good thing and all other associated hindu you know consequences you will face when you don't do something hindus think it's a good thing yeah i was 21 and confused and grieving and on top of all of that i had to hear all this i am literally my parents only child they raised me to be an independent woman and hinduism obviously most hindus have a problem with this anyway maharashtra assembly passed the maharashtra prevention and eradication of human sacrifice and other inhumane evil and aghori practices and black magic act 2013 in december 2013 after dhabolkar's assassination the schedule to this act lists all the practices that are prohibited under this legislation it is quite exhaustive and includes all <laughs> types of so called exorcist practices you know like for example assaulting a person by tying them with rope or chain beating by stick or whip making a person drink footwear soaked water this is oddly specific yeah yeah what is that and how many times did it happen for it to have made it to the bill exactly giving chilly smoke okay hanging a person to the roof fixing him or her with rope or by hair or plucking their hair 
causing pain by way of touching heated objects to organs or body of a person forcing a person to perform sexual acts in the open practicing inhuman acts putting urine or human excreta forcibly in the mouth oh display my God, I, yeah yeah this 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 is something this is one of the things that i've actually heard about and it is display of so called miracles by a person you know inhuman evil and aghori practices with which cause danger to life or grievous hurt etc it's a long list and like we said it's quite exhaustive it became dabolkar's legacy with other states following in maharashtra's footsteps like kerala and karnataka finally let's talk about the investigation in the case by january 2014 pune police had arrested two people in connection with the case manish nagori who was an alleged firearms peddler and his aide vilas khandelwal the interesting thing is that they had been arrested just hours before narendra dabolkar's murder on 20th august 2013 but this was in a completely unconnected extortion case After this arrest they were investigated by the anti-terrorist squad in Maharashtra for possession of illegal firearms the ATS connected the the two to the murder of Narendra Dabolkar only in October 2013 when they realized that the ballistics on the firearms recovered from them matched the shell casings found on the bridge where Dabolkar was assassinated ATS informed the Pune police and that's how they came to be arrested for Dabolkar's murder So their arrest was quite sensational at the time I'm mean, not just because of the victim when they were both produced in court in January they both claimed that they'd been coerced by Rakesh Madia to confess to the crime but later on they would recant the statement so they were lying about this actually guys if uh, Rakesh Madia's name sounds familiar it's because we've talked about him in our Neeraj Grover case He was Mumbai's top cop for many many years. Nothing came of the arrests however because Pune police never charged cheated them. After the Pune police in Maharashtra failed to make any meaningful progress in the investigation, the Bombay High Court transferred the case to the CBI in 2014. In 2016, CBI made the first arrest in connection with the case. It was an ENT surgeon named Virendra Singh Tawade. Tawade was not arrested for shooting Dabolkar. but cbi believed that he was the mastermind behind the assassination in 2018 cbi arrested the men it would claim shot dabolkar their names were sachin prakash rao andure and sharad kalaskar the fourth and the fifth arrests in this case happened in may 2019 when cbi arrested sanjeev punalekar and his friend vikram bhave In November 2019 a supplementary charge sheet was filed against Punalekar and Bhave these people have all been charge sheeted in connection with the Dabolkar murder Punalekar is out on bail whereas the others are all in custody as of right now besides these people the police also arrested three more people Amol Kale Amit Digwekar and Rajesh Bangera You will have to remember these names because they are important although they have not been charge sheeted in this case. Last year in March the CBI claimed that it had recovered the murder weapon or the pistol that uh, would that was used to shoot Dabolkar from the Thane Creek. The allegation was that Sharad Kalaskar had dismantled the pistol and he had thrown it in, in the creek in July 2018. 
To recap, Sharad Kalaskar was arrested in 2018 along with Sachin Andhure and the CBI had claimed that these two were the shooters. The pistol was sent for ballistics and forensics analysis, but so far there has been no update on this front. And with this, the investigation in Dabolkar's murder has completely stalled. Even after more than seven years, the trial has not begun. So regarding the gun, we should uh, just mention that there have been two conflicting reports. So this gun was also linked to other murders that we are going to discuss uh, eventually in this episode. Uh, but there is a bit of a conflict. Uh, the Gujarat Forensic Science Laboratory says that there is no connection, whereas the Karnataka Forensic Science Laboratory says that the same gun was used in all the three murders. So this is something that still needs to be resolved and CBI has to take a call on this. Yeah, the second person to be targeted was Pansare. Govind Pansare was born into a farmer's family. Early on in their life, their land was taken away by moneylenders. He grew up in poverty, but his parents were determined that he should be educated as much as possible. It seemed like their only shot at a better life. Govind would discover communism early on, during his school days, actually. He shifted to Kolhapur for higher education and continued his association with the local leader of the Communist Party of India. The road was not easy for Pansare in the least. He worked many jobs to support himself, his education and his family. He worked as a newspaper vendor, then as a pune, then as a primary school teacher and finally as an associate professor in Shivaji University. Later on, he got his LLB degree. His chosen field for practicing law was labor law, since it aligned with his philosophy in life. Pansare was active in several labor agitations in Maharashtra. Besides this, he was also a vocal critic of the right wing and its most visible and influential manifestation in India, the RSS, Sangh Parivar, and of course, the BJP. He despised their appropriation of secular icons like Gandhi and Shivaji, especially since they only did it to maintain a thin veneer of respectability. Here's the thing about BJP's so-called respect for Gandhi, okay? It's fake. It's yeah. only done because despite... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's only done because despite the pervasive erosion of secular values, Gandhi is deeply respected by many Indians. They cannot be a national organization and ask for votes by saying what they really feel about him, you know? They will not be... They will not openly admit their glee at his assassination or their admiration for his infamous assassin, Nathuram Godse. But this admiration has become more and more open of late, right? Yeah. Like it's on yeah. Twitter, they, <laughs> they pay him respects and whatnot. And this is something Pansare noticed way back in 2014 when BJP actually came to power in India and Modi became the Prime Minister. He hated this about them. He also hated their appropriation of Shivaji. This was more intense for him because he mm, was a Maharashtrian. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, and he also Pansare was a secularist through and through. He despised how BJP and RSS made Shivaji out to be some kind of, you know, raging Hindu avenger against Muslims. So to counter their narrative, he wrote Shivaji's biography, which was quite successful, mm. and it was translated in several Indian languages. And in it, he talked about Shivaji's attempt to create a welfare state, you know, his secularism, or how Muslims were generals and statesmen in Shivaji's government, etc. He didn't like how Shivaji's legacy was co-opted to victimize Muslims in this country. Listen, if I 
get like a paisa for every time <laughs> someone with a shivaji display picture or the or a angry hanuman display picture came to fight with me on twitter because i wrote something remotely towards leading the left <laughs> you know i'll probably be a millionaire by now it's either that or it's this really angry picture of hanuman yeah like yeah like the orange one okay <laughs> he's not like that and yeah. like that god is not <laughs> like that normally i mean dude no he was so compassionate yeah. hanuman as if you believe the legends he was yes. like so he was supposed to be compassionate and everything so pansare was also a close associate of dhabolkar and he had been heartbroken to hear the news of his assassination like dhabolkar he opposed superstitious practices especially something called the putra kamishthi yagya this is basically a puja done in the hopes of a male child Ugh. to him this was abhorrent not just him to us also anyway his crusade against resurgence of godse's ideology harsh criticism of the bjp rss and modi and fadnavis put a target on his head much like his friend dabolkar abvp the student wing of bjp heckled one of his lectures on godse he also received anonymous threats one time he was actually told that he would be killed much like dabolkar and like dabolkar he refused to be intimidated by such tactics there were striking similarities in the assassination of dabolkar and pansare they had both irked the right wing ecosystem in maharashtra they had both faced threats for their activism while dabolkar was killed at point blank range pansare and his wife were shot at close range both times there were two men on a bike who had been waiting for them there was strong indication that the murders were meticulously planned both dabolkar and pansari had been tracked for a while to nail down their routine their assassins knew when they would be out of their walks approximately what time they would be back what would be a good time to shoot as you all must have noticed both assassinations happened after their morning walks if this was a regular habit then some surveillance must have been done it's also interesting to note that dabolkar had not been at home in pune he had been staying with a friend so this meant he was even being tracked for a while so in pansare's case initial arrests did not lead to anything promising a man named samir gaikwar was first arrested by the police in september 2015 but later on it was found that samir had not been in kolhapur on the day pansare and his wife were shot so samir had to be released another man named rudra patel was on the police's radar in maharashtra but we found this to be another dead end the last we heard uh, maharashtra and karnataka had launched a joint operation to look for him and there have been no further updates in this matter the next news of arrest only came in 2019 the special investigation team looking into pansare's assassination requested custody of sharad kalaskar from maharashtra ats if kalaskar's name sounds familiar it's because kalaskar had been arrested along with sachin andure on the suspicion of shooting dabolkar in 2018 as well so cbi says that not only was kalaskar in kolhapur at the time of the murders but he also stayed there for a week afterwards other than this uh, nine more people have been named in connection with the case but no arrests have been made so far and no charge sheet has been filed and no trial has been initiated 
on 31st March 2021, that's literally like two months ago, we can't even say it's two months ago, CBI and SIT were questioned by Bombay High Court about the status of investigations in the assassinations of both Dhabolkar and Pansare. CBI and SIT said that they were ready to proceed with trial in both the cases. So as of right now, we are keeping our fingers crossed for any further movement in these cases. Yes, we are and hopefully not in vain. So now the scene shifts from Maharashtra to Karnataka. And let's talk about M.M. Kalburgi, who was the third person to be assassinated. M.M. Kalburgi was born to agriculturalists in Vijayapura or Bijapur in Karnataka. Kalburgi had dedicated his whole life to Kannada literature and he had served as the Vice-Chancellor of Hampi University. He also won this coveted Sahitya Academy Award in 2006 for his collection of research articles called Marg 1. He had authored 103 books and almost 400 articles in his lifetime. So he was a voracious writer, mm. you know, and writing is hard work. It is. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. So besides Kannada literature, he was also dedicated to the cause of rationalism. He was a left ideologue and as is the problem with anyone who chooses to question tradition and long established cultural norms, Kalburgi also had to face threats from several quarters. Of course. His award winning work, Marg 1, angered the Lingayat community. They thought that it insulted Basavanna. Okay, so Lingayats are basically Shaivites and it's a sect that is very prominent in Karnataka. I think, Sneha, you would know yeah. more about this. Yeah, than yeah, I yeah, it's correct. Uh, and they are quite influential, right? In yeah. like politics yeah, yeah. and money-wise. In Karnataka, mm. yeah. So, uh, so Basavanna was a poet and he was a philosopher, a saint, a statesman. He was also the founder of the Lingayat sect. Basically, he's a very revered figure in Karnataka. So it became a huge deal when the community and its leaders took umbrage with what he said about Basavanna in his work. He had to walk back on his position under their pressure. But later, Kalburgi claimed that he only did that because he feared for his family's life. Uh, he regretted it immensely because he considered it intellectual suicide. He was very demoralized by that. Apart from this, he was also frequently targeted by the same right-wing ecosystem that targeted Dabolkar and Pansare before him. Kalburgi too was a rationalist and he too believed in healthy criticism and intellectual curiosity. And he too was opposed to superstitious practices like black magic or idol worship. Uh, in fact, uh, in 2014, there was a major controversy because he was speaking at this program. And while talking about rationalism, he referred to the work of a Kannada writer and Gyanpita Wadi, U.R. Anantamurti. So Anantamurti had written an essay where he described an incident as a child, like when Anantamurti was a child, he wanted to challenge these age-old religious beliefs. So basically he went and urinated on like idols <laughs> to see if something terrible would happen. And when the right-wingers heard that, they, I mean, they collectively lost their shit. Oh my God. I can totally see that riling up the right-wingers. Especially in times like these. At any time, right? Yeah. And predictably it did. Even the, Because a local man in Bangalore lodged an FIR against Kalburgi for hurting religious sentiments. I mean, this isn't something that Kalburgi did himself. Remember, he was just recounting yeah. an incident from a book. So even that was, uh, you know, uh, 
offensive to him and this man later on he would say that oh i hadn't even heard of you are anant murthy and i i had never heard of his book uh, except when kalburgi <laughs> spoke so like this he was happily living without knowing the existence of this book and all of a sudden bam fir yeah <laughs> plus vhp bajrangdal and shri ramsene they all protested this and he was also actively threatened right before his assassination he had been granted police protection but then he requested their withdrawal later on hmm. after his assassination the course of the investigation proceeded pretty much the same way as it did for dhabolkar and pansare before him the way the assassination happened in kalburgi's home uh, made sure that apart from his wife not many else could take a look at the killers and wife also you know she only got like a fleeting look mm-hmm. because it was early in the morning she was working she opened the door she thought that they were students she let them in so she's like the face didn't you know like immediately didn't register very clearly look this can't be coincidental they must have known what to expect like this struck on a sunday morning you know it seems like very well thought out and planned so yeah it was definitely well planned i mean they figured that this would be early morning on a sunday not many people would be out and about and like on a weekday so they did their due diligence you know and all these assassinations were like that mm. when we discussed the gauri lankesh killing you'll notice the same pattern these people had done their recon work and it was quite effective because in the first days of the investigation the police did not have much to go on they recovered bullet casings from the crime scene uh they also managed to obtain footage of two men in their mid to late 20s dressed in black speeding away on a bike uh this was caught on a cctv camera mm. facing the road in kalyanagar which was a little distance away from the kalburgi home this was right outside a pu college basically they also found a laborer who was working outside the kalburgi home so basically this laborer had heard gunshots inside okay. the house mm. and as he was running inside the house to see what had happened there were two men on the bike right mm. so one of the men had gone in to assassinate the other man was standing outside uh, with the bike and he had kept the engine running for the getaway so this man who was standing outside he stopped the laborer right so this laborer got a good look at the man who had stopped him Okay. So there were these two people, Kalburgi's wife and this laborer who had seen, you know, eat each individual person. But the police couldn't find anyone else who had noticed them or anyone else who had noticed either the registration number of the bike. So it is safe to assume that the assassins knew that they would be under low scrutiny if they chose a Sunday morning to attack. I mean, they must have noted not just the neighbor's daily routine, but also what each member of the Kalburgi home would be doing or where they would usually be at that time. So randomness can be completely ruled out. Yeah, and amateurs also can be ruled out. because this mm. doesn't seem like a first time job or at least it doesn't seem like a job done without any training or preparation yeah yeah and initially the police wanted to keep an open mind and they wanted to look at every possibility right so uh, they concentrated on this property dispute there had been a property dispute in kalburgi's extended family and he had intervened and the matter had been resolved amicably mm-hmm. right within yeah. the family yeah. members so the police wondered if the killing was somehow linked to that whether this was some disgruntled family member who was not happy with the arrangement but everybody in kalburgi's family said that the dispute was resolved there were no arguments after that and there were no hard feelings so why would that be a reason The next most obvious suspects were obviously the people threatening him in the first place the right wing organizations so they began with the CCTV footage 
and then they also created a sketch of the suspects based on the testimonies of Kalburgi's wife and the laborer outside their home. And you can see the sketches, right? They're, they're really clear. Yeah, man, like I'm looking at them right now. And normally, police sketches are kind of vague looking. But these mm. are highly detailed, man. means they would have gotten like quite a good look at them. Yeah, but this too didn't help for a long time. The case became cold. In fact, meaningful progress would only happen in the case when Karnataka would lose another one of its intellectuals with the assassination of Gauri Lankesh. So with this, let's jump right into it. Let's talk about Gauri Lankesh and the investigation into her murder. Gauri Lankesh was born in 1962 to P. Lankesh, a journalist who owned the Lankesh Patrike, a tabloid in Karnataka. Her sister Kavita, in an interview, told the Quint that her sister had been opinionated and free-thinking from the very beginning. She defied traditions growing up, paving the way for Kavita as well. Gauri chose to be a journalist. She worked for Times of India and the Sunday magazine in Bangalore. She got married as well to Chidanand Rajaghatta, who is a journalist currently based in the US. Eventually, Gauri and her brother Indrajit started managing the Lankesh Patrike, which they inherited from their father. She became the editor of the newspaper, while her brother looked after the business side of the publication. So for the purposes of this podcast, we don't want to go into Gauri's ideology. There are so many accounts from people who personally knew her and you all should definitely read those. We will be linking them in our show notes. What stands out is that people don't shy from acknowledging their differences with Gauri. They talk about how they disagreed with her over many issues and they point out parts of her personality they find problematic. In fact, from everything I read about Gauri, she comes across as a mercurial figure who never held back. People expected a fight from her, but people also had respect for her. She was labelled an axle, as is often by right-wing or even centrist, the minute you lean even a little bit to the left. But she helped formal Naxalites enter the mainstream and continue their agitation through democratic means. She founded the Citizens' Initiative for Peace, which brought together formal Naxals, enabled them to give up violence and resolved their issues through peaceful and constitutional means. She was pained by reports of encounter killings by the police against these people. She was worried about the rising intolerance in the country. I think uh, she remarked once at an event that her father and his friends and colleagues, they were staunch critics of Jawaharlal Nehru and Indira Gandhi and Rajiv Gandhi, but they never had to fear for their lives ever. Yeah, and like every other person who we've mentioned in this story, Gauri was highly critical of the right wing. To her, Hindutva was a threat that was going to break up the country. She was anti-BJP, anti-RSS and was vocal against people who supported them or were not loud enough in their criticism of these forces. She noted how it marginalized Muslims and minorities, but also the people it claimed to uplift, Dalits and Adivasis. She saw how it betrayed these communities while at the same time pretending to be their saviors. She organized protests and agitations and supported youngsters involved in them, like Jignesh Mevani, Kanaya Kumar, Shaila Rashid and Umar Khalid. 
She highlighted the growing violence against journalists and the shrinking space for fair and independent journalism. Gauri was divorced and she didn't have children of her own. She considered Jignesh, Kanaiya, Shaila and Umar as her children. Also, the Gauri Lankesh Patrike was her baby. She set it up after she had an argument with her brother about how the Lankesh Patrike should be run. He didn't agree with what he considered views sympathetic to Naxals. She belonged to the Lingayat sect and was actively campaigning for it to be accorded a minority religion tag, separate from Hinduism or Brahminism, which she considered exploitative of women, Dalits and Bahujan. So needless to say that she too earned the ire of the right-wing ecosystem. I mean, she too received threats from them regularly. In fact, an important piece of information in her case came early on because of the CCTV camera installed outside her home, which was overlooking the main entrance where she was gunned down. When she died, many people whose lives she had touched wrote about her life. And in one of those pieces, I read that she actually joked with her friends about the camera when she had it installed. Yeah, she told her friends that if she were ever killed, at least they would know who did it. Which is... Anyway, so by the time Gauri Lankesh was assassinated, people had noticed the trend of assassinations of prominent intellectuals in Maharashtra and Karnataka. So her death also sparked outrage with people marching with placards saying, I am Gauri Lankesh. Ah, but see, Gauri Lankesh Patrike was not a very popular publication, right? Uh, no, it was not. It, was, it had limited circulation. But Gauri's death struck a chord among a lot of people who were averse to the right-wing venom coursing through this country. I mean, remember, this is Mm, 2017. And I'm not even for a moment saying that Islamophobia or communalism or casteism is a problem that only began in 2014 with the BJP coming to power or, or that it is exclusively associated with the BJP because we know these problems have existed since far before that. But BJP did manage to precipitate the problem, right? Yeah. By 2017, the country was already in a downward spiral. I mean, right-wing narratives like Urban Naxal or Khan Market Gang were gaining popularity. Gorakshaks were becoming common, lynchings of Muslims, institutional targeting of Dalits, they were all becoming commonplace. Two major incidents had happened by this point, lynching of Pehlu Khan and Akhlaq. The JNU incident had already taken place. Article 370 had been revoked. So these things were already happening, you know, like by the time Gauri was murdered. Her murder was a watershed moment in many ways. Although in hindsight, I don't think it changed much, especially with regards to the ruling dispensation. Mm. But I do think that it started a more vigorous conversation on how the right wing was stifling dissent and democracy in the country and how it was targeting Muslims and Dalits, Bahujans and even women at some point. Yeah. So coming back to the investigation, to track the investigation in this case, we found the reporting in Quint to be the most methodical and detailed and therefore we've primarily relied on that uh, but it is also supported by other news reports. Everything is linked in our show notes so if you want to delve deeper you can always check those out. So uh, for the SIT that was investigating this case the very first clue into Gauri's murder came from the CCTV footage itself. The stance the shooter took before firing at her indicated that he was trained. This means two things. Either he was a professional hitman or he had been recruited and trained. And either of those theories meant that this was not the work of a random person. This was pre-planned and premeditated. Yeah. 
So now the SIT had to figure out which institution would have the motive to do this. Several theories were floating around, but the two main ones were that it was either left-wing extremism or right-wing extremism. Why was left-wing extremism on the table? I thought Gauri sympathized with their cause. No, she sympathized with their cause, but not their methods, you know. And when I say cause, I specifically mean the, the, the cause for equity and egalitarianism, the end to oppression and marginalization of vulnerable groups. That's what she wanted. She weaned many naxals off violence and she persuaded them to adopt constitutionalism as a method for their struggles. So many people, including her brother, felt that maybe Naxal leaders were angry with her for taking away their recruits, although her sister and other relatives didn't really agree with Indrajit there. They suspected the right wing, since the bulk of the threats were coming from them. Eventually, SIT investigation proved them right. In the months after the murder, since the Karnataka SIT had very little to go on, besides the four-second video caught on the CCTV camera, they undertook a massive exercise of monitoring phone calls linked to known right-wing operatives. They monitored hundreds of calls until they found something relevant. There was a conversation between a man named Naveen and another unidentified man. Naveen was telling the man that he was going underground because of Gauri Lankesh's murder. They tracked Naveen's number for a while, before realizing that they weren't getting any more leads from it. They looked at their database and found an alternative number for Naveen. It looked like the phone was only used for incoming calls. Calls were always made from PCOs, which were often hundreds of kilometers away, and always from the same person. In one of the calls, Naveen refers to him as Praveen Anna. Now, the SIT had their second name in the investigation. Oh, also in this episode, we'll keep calling him Praveen, but his real name was Suchit Kumar. The police trailed Naveen for months, hoping that he would lead them to Praveen. But Naveen only ever got calls from Praveen. During this time, they realized that Naveen was preparing for another murder. This time of another Kannada writer and rationalist, K.S. Bhagwan. He went to Bangalore to collect the weapon from his contact. At this point, the police had to make a judgment call. Naveen had so far not left them to Praveen and he was now preparing for another murder. So, they decided to arrest him. So, Naveen confessed to the police that he was supposed to go to Udupi on the pretext of attending a wedding and he would meet Praveen there and he would hand over the weapon that he had obtained in Bengaluru. So, now that the SIT knew about this, they started making preparations to try and arrest Praveen in Udupi. But unfortunately, the press in Udupi got a wind of the plan and they broadcasted it before the police could do anything. So, Praveen found out and he immediately went MIA. Even though he was underground, Praveen was still actively making calls from various phone booths like he had been doing with Naveen. So the SIT was tracing these calls. Eventually, they heard his voice again and realized that the call had been made from Udupi itself. And they shortlisted 30 phone booths based on this previous pattern. And uh, policemen in Mufti were placed at each of these locations to track them. Their efforts paid off and one day they eventually found Praveen. So his identity was confirmed by one of the other men who were arrested in connection with the case. So during this time, uh, they were also tracking Praveen's phone and they found that he regularly called someone that he only referred to as Bhai Sahab. The police realized that this mysterious Bhai Sahab was probably the next guy higher up in the hierarchy. So instead of arresting Praveen right away, they decided to put him under surveillance. 
and this lasted for about 20 days he was supposed to meet this bhai saab one day uh, the police were following him uh, the bhai saab was in a van uh, but before he could actually reach the van the police arrested praveen and they demanded to know who bhai saab was so praveen pointed to the van and uh, you know he said that uh, bhai saab was sitting inside and inside the van was the mastermind of the whole operation amol kale the other two people in the van were amit digvikar who was the financier of the whole operation and mohan adave who was a recruiter four diaries were recovered in total two from amol kale and one each from digvikar and adave the diaries were written in code mostly which revealed names and phone numbers they also contained a hit list in kale's diary they found a chit on which a timeline was written along with a to do list The last date on this timeline was 5th March 2017 the day Lankesh was assassinated this linked Amol Kale to Lankesh's murder the police interrogated the people who had been taken into custody and finally zeroed in on the man who had pulled the trigger his name was Parashuram Vaghmore the quint report i read mentions that Vaghmore was expecting the police that he was relieved almost to see them He was also very cooperative during the investigation. He revealed the names of his accomplices with a fair amount of ease. Among the people he named was a man called Ganesh Miskin. And here's an interesting story about Miskin. When the SIT were conducting their call dragnet, they also intercepted a 192nd phone call between a man and his uncle. The man was telling his uncle that his older brother was responsible for two murders the one in september so gauris and the other one before that and this is how ganesh miskin was linked to kalburgi's assassination the man on the phone was his younger brother so vagmore also led them to other men who were involved in the crime the most notable being rajesh bangera we've mentioned bangera's name before uh, in this podcast he had been arrested earlier as well uh, Also remember we said that literally the first clue the police had in Lankesh's murder was that CCTV footage outside a home in that footage the assassin or Vaghmore was seen in a proper shooter stance indicating prior experience or training and it was Bangera who had provided not just arms but also training to Vaghmore so he was an essential part of the puzzle also despite the fact that people were already expecting these four assassinations to be connected in some way it was actually bangera who dropped the bombshell he claimed that he had also trained the assassins responsible for the murders of dhabolkar and kalburgi since these connections emerged karnataka sit shared information with maharashtra which was still investigating the murders of dhabolkar and pansare at the time and it was the result of this intel that sharad kalaskar was finally arrested so just to remind you all kalaskar was wanted in dhabolkar's murder and his custody was requested by maharashtra in 2018 from karnataka police one thing uh, we've not mentioned so far by the way when vagmore was questioned by the police about his motives He openly said that he did it to save his religion or save Hinduism. He thought Gauri was a threat to his religion so he just killed her. I mean he had no personal connection with her or no, there was there was no personal grudge and that's why this confession was alarming, right? Yeah. Uh, he had no idea 
yeah he had no idea that he was supposed to kill till the time he actually was handed over the weapon he had no idea who his accomplices were at the time you know he was just a pawn he was following orders he didn't know the whole scheme he just knew that he he had been handed a gun and two guys on a bike came to pick him up and he just had to shoot this woman outside this particular address that's all he knew and later on he did say that he regretted killing her so he had been brainwashed right essentially brainwashed trained radicalized there are so many things to call it we can say that this was a highly organized operation there was an institution behind this right they had an aim mm. there there were means that they, they had money there was a larger purpose to this killing i mean remember the diaries we mentioned earlier they had all these names there was a hit list there were 33 names on that hit list in total including that of actor girish karnad and these people were all rationalists and secularists who were questioning and condemning the rise of hindutva ideology in india so this was no coincidence so we know we've taken a lot of names in this episode believe me we had to leave out some which we felt were not relevant to the narrative you don't have to rely on just the information we present here you can always go to our sources for more detail The problem with the investigations at this point is that trial has not started in any of the four murders. But investigations have revealed two crucial things. Firstly, they're all connected and secondly, the connection is a nefarious shadowy organization or organizations if you want to count them separately. Since this episode has become too long, in the next episode we will explore the links of the main accused in these murders with a relatively lesser known but highly dangerous hindu right wing organization with its headquarters located where you least expect it in the sunny beach paradise of goa so that's it for today we hope you like this episode and we'll tune in for the next one please leave us a review and rating on apple podcasts if you listen to us there or just follow or subscribe wherever you listen this helps us a lot follow us on our social media for the latest updates we also have a youtube channel where we post bonus content so subscribe to that one as well these are terrifying times for all of us a lot of you must be dealing with covid either first hand or second hand because no one has been left untouched We really don't have too many words of comfort because we know from personal experience that they mean little when you are actually going through rough times. So just remember to take care of yourself and each other. We haven't formally declared it, but our Insta and Twitter handles are open for everyone to post COVID-related requirements. If you need to, please reach out to the community to seek help. It's really just at this point it's all any of us can really do that's it from us we'll see you all next week bye bye bye